The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So before the, the break, we were talking about the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta. But before that, I, we looked at the, um, the elements or the structure, and we pointed out that there's this refrain that keeps on being repeated 13 times. I said it was kind of like the chorus in a song. So what is this refrain? So um, to help us kind of start with this exploration, I'll lead us in a little bit of a guided meditation. This won't be very long, but um, just as one way to kind of um, maybe have a different way of working with or thinking about this. So I know it's right after lunch, so I won't have us do a long thing. Whoops. Otherwise, we'll uh, fall asleep. So let's... And again, it'll be kind of a combination of things from the texts and my own wording. So you'll, maybe you'll notice the difference in the words. So we'll start by taking an alert, upright posture. And just as we did before, we'll bring our attention, we'll be mindful of the breath the in-breath and the out-breath. And just know, when are you breathing in? When are you breathing out? Again, if you find yourself lost in thought or no longer aware of the breath, just very simply come back to the sensations of breathing. So keeping the sensations of breathing as the anchor or the home base, we can also allow the mindfulness to go towards whatever is compelling. 
Maybe a sensation in the body. Maybe a sound. Just very simply, we can let go of the breath and place our attention on whatever's compelling. If nothing's compelling or it doesn't get lost, you can always come back to the sensations of breathing. Just notice the in-breath and the out-breath in a relaxed, simple, easy way. if you can apply apply a little bit of diligence. This doesn't mean that we take a sledgehammer to the objects. It means that for the next few minutes, this is what we're doing. We're being mindful of the breath or whatever is compelling. Now to incorporate some of the teachings of the refrain, see if you can notice the arising of the objects in your mind. Maybe the beginning of them becoming compelling or the beginning of your becoming aware of them. It may be that you don't notice right then at the moment when it starts, but maybe soon after. Again, it can be the breath, the sound of my words. Can you notice the beginnings of them, the arising? Maybe you have just the briefest reflection. Oh yeah, that didn't used to be there, it's there now. Without anything complicated, just a very simple recognition. This has arisen. Let's turn our attention to the endings 
of experiences, the endings of objects in the mind, things disappearing, things going away. Can we notice that? If you ever feel lost or a little bit confused, you can always just come back very simply to in-breath and out-breath. But maybe even within that, when does the in-breath end? When does the out-breath begin? You can notice that objects don't stay forever. Of course they don't. They pass away is the language we often use. Can you see this? Maybe it has already happened that you start to notice both the arising and the passing. Some things start, some things end. Maybe the same thing, you can see it start and end. And then to end this meditation, feel the cushion or the chair against your body. Feel your feet on the ground. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. in this way, we're paying attention not only to um, objects themselves, but we're kind of introduced a little bit of the element of time, right? That things are there and then they pass away or they arise and they're there for a certain amount of time. 
maybe a long time, maybe a short time, and then they pass away. Highlights this um, key teaching on impermanence. Would anybody like to share or comment? What was that like to kind of pay particular attention to the beginnings and the endings or the risings and passing away of uh, objects? Like to intentionally look at that. Was it easy? Was it straightforward? Did you notice anything different? Did it feel like too much trouble? You didn't want to bother with it? Thank you, Jim. This is the perennial problem with everybody. Oh, okay. Are we there? Yes, there we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, w- when you use the word, they poof away, I noticed that my... Uh, some visual things that I had been noticing poofed away. <laughs> it just kind of disappeared in kind of a poof of steam. And Did I, thought, I, I, I didn't intend to use that word poofed away. But oh, you I, didn't intend maybe to? Maybe with the microphone it sounded like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what did you intend to say? <laughs> you didn't hear that? I oh. meant to say pass away, but oh. I think the microphone sometimes gets a little... Oh, I heard poof away, and I thought, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe I should have a meditation, and then you're all awakened, <laughs> liberated, <laughs> and the power of suggestion. <laughs> all that clinging just poofs away. <laughs> <laughs> but that was your experience, that it just kind of just yeah. disappeared? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a visual experience that just and a puff of steam. Oh, nice! Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> How was it? Was it easier to see the beginnings or the endings, or was it the same, or was one easier than another? I think for me it was easier because had the in- with you saying that I had the intention of doing it too. My practice by myself, I don't really notice that as much because I don't have that intention in mind. So for me, when hearing you say that, it did set that intention for me. So it was easier for me to to notice things go and then how they pass too. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's part of the reason why the, the Buddha was a teacher and why these texts got preserved through all these years is because. Probably eventually we would notice, like, oh yeah, this thing that was bothering me isn't bothering me anymore, right? Eventually we uh, we all have this experience, but we can kind of like cultivate uh, seeing certain experiences. And so a key teaching in the Buddhist teachings is this idea of impermanence. Right? We all know this. We all have this experience. We all know that the f- leaves fall off the trees and fall and come back in spring and something like this. But it's a different experience to see this at a really different, like in a meditative state, and to just start to see, like, oh, yeah, not only leaves on trees, but, in fact, everything... Everything, everything, everything. 
like without exception. There are no exceptions. Things arise and pass away. And so that uh, the frequency or the rapidity of the rising and the passing away sometimes changes, right? On, like if we're really concentrated on it, then maybe we can see like certain vibrations about things or a flickering about things. If we're not really paying attention, they seem perfectly solid and exactly of how it was before. So as we kind of, the more we meditate, we start to notice more and more how there's a, things aren't as, steady as we might think and so this um, has a number of um, implications of it there's a um, maybe a few is that this just this recognition can help us with our meditation practice can support us right if we can just reflect like Oh yeah, how, how many different things have arisen in my mind and passed away in my mind here while I'm meditating in the last hour, if we just reflect back. The last day, how many different postures have I been in? How many different bodily sensations have I had? How many different mental states have I had? Right? It's, right? it's uncountable how many. But if we start to recognize, like, oh, yeah, things are moving all the time, that can give us a little confidence for when the difficult things, the uncomfortable things, the unpleasant things arise, right? We know this. We don't get to choose to only have pleasant experiences. But just this recognition of uh, impermanence, things are coming and going all the time, can really support our practice and help us to not be as reactive. Maybe that's the important part. Instead of, dang it, go away. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this experience in my knee, in my back, hip, whatever happens. We talk about knee often because those are sensations we often have when we're meditating. But if there's a certain amount of wisdom that has happened, like, oh yeah, I've seen this experience in my knee happen countless times before and it's, I've survived it and sometimes it goes away, just helps the reactivity to soften. And when there isn't reactivity, then we can just be present for what's actually happening, can support our mindfulness. Sometimes this happens that when we have this intention, okay, I'm going to look at for the arising of things. Without even necessarily intending to, we start to notice, oh yeah, I feel cold because the air conditioner went on. Oh yeah, (laughs) of course I'm a little bit sleepy. It's after lunch. Oh, yeah, maybe I, you know, have this pain in my back because I usually don't sit in chairs like this. We just start to notice that these arisings are connected to other things that happened earlier. We we know this, too, in our daily lives. But with meditation, we start to see this, again, with everything, everything, everything. There are no exceptions. So just kind of like starting to have that experience of this, like, oh yeah, there's, there's, things don't happen randomly or for no reason. They happen for reasons and starting to just get an appreciation of the conditionality of things can also kind of give us a certain um, confidence too that supports our practice. Okay, maybe I'm, uh, I'm feeling tired and a little bit uh, foggy-headed. Well, maybe I shouldn't have eaten as much at lunch. Right, we learned something, and okay, maybe next time I won't eat quite the same. I'm just making this up, but whatever it may be. 
So this insight into impermanence, an insight, I'll use that word, to be a little bit different, not a little bit, maybe a big, than understanding. We all understand this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But an insight is more of an experiential understanding that changes you. Different than an intellectual understanding. Maybe this um, uh, one that perhaps many of us have experienced. We may understand that loved ones may die, but it's not until someone that you love dies, you have a completely different understanding of that, right? You have the, the loss and what's happening, and you sort of, oh, wow, okay, I'm not exempt from this too. It's a different understanding than before something like that happens. So this insight into impermanence is really the power of mindfulness practice is really the kind of what helps lead to freedom. So now I'm talking in the Buddhist context where mindfulness is done as part of a bigger training to lead to liberation and nibbana. It also supports kind of uh, mindfulness supports us in our seeing impermanence, supports us in our daily life. But the power of mindfulness to to support the insight of impermanence is what um, leads to liberation. Partly how this works is, I described this a little bit to some people while we were sitting out on the porch, is that um, when we start to see that actually everything without exception is impermanent, then we start to just notice like, wow, this is like, it's, uncomfortable that there what's steady what where can i rest what is uh where is a refuge where is what's constant that i can hold on to and that will can always be there to support me the more and more um quiet we get with our mind the more we start to see that things aren't as steady as we thought they were this can be good, right, if it's uh, something unpleasant, but it can be bad, too, if it's something that we hold dear or that we believe that we really need to make us happy or, or otherwise that we're really holding on to. So we start to see the unsatisfactory nature of all these things that keep changing, keep arising and passing away. They cannot reliably be a source of lasting happiness. And part of the human condition is we are looking for sources of lasting happiness. Of course we are. Maybe before we found meditation, maybe still, maybe we will continue to. We often think, right, it'll be in our bank accounts, it'll be in our status, it'll be in our appearance, it'll be in all these other things. The more we practice, we start to say, well, that turns out not to be quite as uh, reliable as I thought. Okay, well, maybe this view, maybe this, uh, I don't know, it's untold things we can hold on to, right? Things just aren't as satisfactory as we had thought initially or as we had hoped. And then when we, this kind of this, it's that very, very deep understanding, nothing is going to be a source of lasting happiness. Nothing. 
not anything. Then the the mind just naturally just lets go. Oh yeah, I'm looking for a happiness. What if I just kind of relax and stop actually looking? Maybe it's the looking. The trying to find that's causing this unhappiness. What if I just allow things to be arising and passing away? And what if I stop expecting them to cause uh, lasting happiness? And it's that radical at a very deep level letting go that is the uh, entryway into freedom, to awakening nibbana. So what I just described happens on so many different levels. We all have this uh, experience on just the mundane, everyday level. I'm sure I could come up with an idea if I um, thought about it. I remember one that uh, Gil, the founder here, that he gave during a retreat that really uh, stuck, stuck with me, so I'll give this one. one uh, this, uh, he said this years and years ago. So one of his sons... Uh, I guess it's the practice in Gil's house that on occasions they would, for breakfast, they would have waffles. And one of his sons uh, was very particular about exactly where the syrup should go. Only in these particular holes of the waffle, right? And not in other ones and not on the plate or, you know, something like this. Very particular. But then as the, uh, as this son uh, started to mature, grow up, he just let go when he started to see like wow kind of what a hustle it is to try to keep all the syrup and only those certain waffles and the freedom of allowing to just the syrup to go wherever it is <laughs> and the freedom for the son as well as for the father who was putting the syrup on the waffle right there's just like much more freedom so that's kind of a silly example but in some ways it really stayed with me because like how many preferences do we have things have to be a particular way but then when we can see like oh actually maybe they don't have to be a particular way and it's just natural that we start to see like it's such a hassle to try to do things a certain way we just naturally let go so it's in the same way that this happens so so the progression is seen in permanence feeling, experiencing that impermanence things are unsatisfactory, not a source of lasting happiness. And then just uh, letting go of this. Things are not mine. I can't control them. I don't have to make them, insist that they make me happy. Just allow them to be what they're doing. Yes. I'm not sure where the microphones are. Does anybody know? Oh, here we go. So, um, would you say that, I'm just trying to paraphrase the last thing you said to make sure I I understand. So, is it kind of uh, three steps? Like, you see, you feel, and then you can really understand, but you can't shock it, the feeling, to get from seeing to understanding? Oh, that's a great question, Sylvie. Um, um, I, uh, hmm. My 
gut says, yes, you cannot short-circuit it, that seeing the suffering, the inherent unsatisfactoriness, otherwise why would we let go? As long as we think that, oh yeah, okay, finally, uh, this will make me happy. I think it's an inherent part of it. That's, and I can't think of, um, I can't, yeah, I'll just say with that, I think so. But uh, And I can't, th- off the top of my head, bring to mind a text that would support this idea you don't need to see the unsatisfactory nature, but it may- might be there. So, Okay, okay. So, let's now get back to the Satipatthana Sutta. What does this impermanence have to do with uh, mindfulness practice? So this refrain that gets uh, repeated after all of these exercises, which we haven't gone into any detail about yet. Well, actually we have. I've led us through the mindfulness of breathing at the beginning. Then there's this refrain. It goes this way. In this way, with regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in the body. And mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, with regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So you'll see that there were lots of different elements in there, but the second one, one abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away, the body. So seeing impermanence is a critical or is a integral, maybe is the word I should say, of mindfulness practice, as this practice is a way to freedom. But there's these other elements there. In the um, interest of time, maybe I'll just ask you, what do you think this means with regard to the body? One abides contemplating the body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Reminded this, we could also say one abides contemplating the mind internally, externally, both internally and externally. What do you think that is pointing to? To contemplate things both internally and externally. Yes, so can we, Sylvia, can you put a microphone to Barbara behind you? I'm just guessing. Um, Does that mean that you want identify with one's body, so you're looking at it internally, and at a certain stage you look at it at a distance in a way, that you're not so identified with the body, so you look at it 
externally. Oh, interesting. That could be one way. So maybe I should say this. There is no really great way to answer this. This is what all the scholars say. This is a real question that people are talking about a lot. Like, what does this mean? Because one obvious or maybe one additional way internally is myself, my own body, my own mind, my own feelings. We haven't talked about feelings yet. but And then externally can be with others. Right? One abides contemplating the body of others, contemplating the mind of others, the, these dhammas, which we haven't really talked about yet either. But how do you do that? How do you contemplate the mind of others? How do you, how do, you do this practice? Why would you want to contemplate the mind of others? Fantastic. So, Sylvie, she didn't have a microphone to develop um, compassion and, and empathy. Empathy, yes. So, right, if we can see, like, oh, this person is suffering, that can support the arising of compassion in us. If we are, like, mindful and we notice the way that's there moving, perhaps, that there's a lot of suffering, maybe what they're saying is a lot of suffering. How do we contemplate the mind of others? It is what you're thinking. That uh, in a Buddhist text, and I did a little survey about in contemporary Dharma teachers, it suggests that there's you can read other people's minds somehow. I don't know if this is it doesn't I don't know right how this works if it works or something like this. But maybe if, even if we don't believe in um, there's supernatural powers or being, having been able to uh, read other people's minds, we often can kind of infer the mind state from somebody, right? By the, their bodies, what they're saying, what they're doing, their posture, those types of things. So Sylvie said one way is because it can arise. Well, why we would want to do that is because it can help support the um, arising of certain things in our minds. Why else would we want to do something like that? Why would we want to uh, contemplate other people's bodies, minds? Would it be for understanding? Yeah, right? So, well, actually, can you say a little bit more? What would we understand? The nature of the mind. So uh, can you say a little bit more by contemplating other people's minds? Well, so I think by understanding oneself, automatically you see certain um, signs in other people. Yes. And it works both ways. We can see, like, people, for example, if you see them walking in a way that they're not on your, if you're on, the expectation is that you're supposed to be mindful during walking meditation. Let's give the example. And you see somebody who isn't mindful or is really mindful that can just remind you, like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be meditating here. So kind of that can help support. But another, there's two other reasons. One is to kind of soften the tendency that there may be for this self, uh, self-centeredness, self-concerns, where it can help to soften this idea that we're focused so much on ourselves. 
this having mindfulness be about internally and externally. It's like it's just not us, right? We are in a context. We are in communities. We are in environments to remind us that there's more about this. Exactly, Sylvie said to remind us of our shared humanity. That's exactly right. Like that, just like that person is happy, sometimes I'm happy. Just like that person is suffering, I'm suffering. And kind of building on what Barbara said, we start to feel, see, like as we start to understand our minds better, we start to say it doesn't feel so personal. It's like, oh yeah. I just start to see that I get grumpy when I haven't eaten and it's after lunch and this person is grumpy. Maybe they haven't eaten. This helps us to understand. And also the last thing is that we're not so also so caught up in externals that we lose touch with ourselves. Right? Sometimes it can be the opposite, that we are so focused on what's out there other people are doing, what other people are saying, or these objects that we want or that we don't want, that we're kind of lost touch with ourselves, what's happening in our lives, our inner life and our inner uh, experience or something like this. So there's a few more um, so elements about this. Maybe I'll just say this. Um, we talked about impermanence and this one uh, the third element um, wait is it the third let's see here Um, yes mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness to the extent necessary this also points to something that we don't have to, um, I use this expression, or use a sledgehammer about, um, you know, with our objects. We don't have to be grabbing onto them. We don't have to um, strain, strain, strain. This is a skill, right? How can we be diligent? How can we be committed? but not with a straining or with a tightness that things have to be, you know, that we have to find these objects, but just to the extent necessary. Bare knowledge is a way of just that we know that these things have arisen and that supports continuity. A way to kind of tell how, um, like, the level of effort that's needed is that during the meditation period, for example, if you ever come here at uh, IMC and at the end, just see how what your body does after you've been meditating for 45 minutes. You hear the bell. Is there a certain amount of, oh, <laughs> I made it. <laughs> if there's that kind of a feeling, then there's a little bit too much striving. There's a, right? But it's tricky because sometimes you feel like this is a real skill. Like, how can you stay mindful without having a real uh, straining? And something else that this um, points to is just to the extent necessary is that um, it points to that it's not, I talked earlier about how seeing impermanence leads to awakening, but somehow practice is for the sake of practice so you practice mindfulness in order to be mindful 
So it's to help soften this goal-oriented way. I better do this so that something in particular will happen. Instead, it's just to the extent necessary so that there can be the next moment of mindfulness. And can can it be simple without um, a lot of extra things and without this feeling of like, am I there yet? It's this, you know, that kind of a feeling. So the Satipatthana Sutta has this uh, definition, which we talked about before lunch, has these exercises, these which we'll talk about in a moment. But after each of those exercises, it has this refrain. So it's like kind of giving us additional instructions about um, how to be mindful internally and externally. Notice impermanence. Notice the effort that we are ha- are using. And this last one, one abides independent, not clinging to the world, is um, not clinging. That's related to what I've said before. But also independent also implies that you start to understand things for yourself. You don't need uh, um, teachers or dharma talks. As the practice progresses, you feel like, oh yeah, at this moment I I understand. I don't, uh, I have certain like, yeah, this is my practice. A certain like independence of uh, instead of like, is this exactly what he told me to do? So like, yeah, this is this is it. Okay. So, because we're going to end soon, I say let's take a little break now, and then we'll um, introduce what are these exact practices when we come back. So, can we do this in ten minutes? Something like two twenty-eight, something like that. Yes, I have. To, uh, okay, I'll ring the bell. Great, thank you. Yeah, uh, let's stop. Thank you. <laughs>